This is Transforming Culture, an MBC podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Transforming Culture. My name is Luke LaRock, and I'm the host of this podcast and the director of ministry at Muskoka Bible Center. Our goal with these podcast episodes is to start healthy biblical conversations with each other about cultural issues that impact our everyday lives. We've had some great interviews so far with various speakers, and we're excited to bring you the last four episodes over the month of November. One quick housekeeping note before we start today's episode. Do you remember back in episode one when we shared that this was the first podcast that NBC was going to launch and that we were going to be learning lots of things along the way? Well, we have learned a lot. However, we are still getting some learning in. And one of the things we've learned is that you shouldn't announce who is going to be featured on your next episode until you're absolutely sure that the audio is ready, which happened this week. We need to do a little bit more with Scotty Smith to get his episode ready, so our episode order is getting a little bit jumbled up. Thankfully, we're finally ready with our audio from Kevin Wilcox, all the way back from week three of the summer. And to be completely honest, this is a whole new thing. The audio from the summer was, in the end, just not usable. And while we did our best, we didn't want echoing and other noises to distract from what Kevin had to say, so we asked him to re-record the episode. Kevin was gracious enough to agree and even hosted me at his home for the recording session. With that in mind, this episode takes on a bit of a different format from other episodes. You'll see that it is more of an interview style podcast episode. And although Kevin and I have only known each other for a few months, we get on like old friends and definitely get sidetracked once or twice. I met Kevin through another podcast where he was being interviewed, and when the topic of deconstruction presented itself as one we should be discussing during the summer, I thought right away of Kevin and having him speak at NBC. He's an assistant crown attorney in the Durham region with a background in criminal defense. He's also a candidate for a Master of Laws at the University of Ottawa, where he is currently completing his thesis project on human trafficking within Canada's pornography industry. He has served overseas with International Justice Mission, assisting with anti-slavery litigation in South Asia. He has served various ministry roles over the course of his life, ranging from inner-city ministry community building with street-involved and homeless populations to camp, youth, and worship ministry across southern Ontario. Kevin is passionate about visiting the widow and the orphan in their affliction and seeing the body of Christ respond to the world's suffering in the name, love, and power of our Almighty God. Let's head now to the conversation we had together about deconstruction. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast with us today. I know that this is very different than we had originally planned. The room size is a little bit smaller than the (laughs) chapel at MBC. Uh, As I explained to folks in the introduction, we had some audio issues. You very graciously waited through that with us. Uh, We were trying to see if we could save the audio from the summer. 
in the end, it wasn't possible. And so here we are uh, in a very small room with lots of padded comforters and things like that and two microphones, which I'm excited for. I, I love having conversations. Um, those who have heard most of the podcast episodes know that I love to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And so this will be a little bit different because I'm going to poke at you as you're speaking and kind of challenge things. But I'm just so excited to hear what you have to say about deconstruction. Um, and as I've said in the summer, and I'll say again now, uh, it's something that's near and dear to my heart because I think looking back on it, I probably deconstructed in university, um, mm -hmm. you know, in a salvific way, which you will talk about later. So I won't steal your thunder, but I definitely wrestled with my faith and I've come out on the other side of it. I think a, a stronger follower of Jesus because mm -hmm. it made my faith my own. Mm -hmm. It's not something that was taught to me by my elders or passed on and just assumed. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, lots of people are going through that right now mm -hmm. where they are really struggling with what to do. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to just open the floor to you and kind of just say, you know, share with us, how did you get started on this journey of deconstruction thought? Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, you are a believer and a follower of Jesus. You have not deconstructed, that's right. uh, but you have lots of friends who have. And I think, you know, that's even how we got to know each other was me hearing you speak on another podcast mm -hmm. of someone who was deconstructing. All of that led to you speaking this summer at NBC and now here recording in this small room. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for for making this happen. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm sorry that the, the audio issues sort of made made an impact on things. But it's it's kind of a blessing in disguise for me because I love talking about this and just getting to rehash this and sort of review, review this topic again and and share it in in a format that's ultimately going to be, I think, a little bit more accessible to people. Um, is really exciting for me. So thank you for having me. Thank you for making the trip. Um, for those who are listening, I don't live in, I don't live anywhere close to NBC. I, I do live in Ontario, but I'm, I'm closer to Lake Ontario than I am to the Muskokas. And so Luke has graciously, graciously driven to my neck of the woods and I'm, I'm super grateful for the opportunity. When we make a mistake and ruin your audio, we do the drive. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm really excited for this. So thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm just excited to kind of get going on this topic again. So um, does it make sense, I think, for me to just introduce myself and kind of yeah. talk about why this matters to me? Yeah, I'd say that just give us kind of like the rundown of where deconstruction uh, has come in for you. Um, most of the audience will have already heard a little bio that I read mm -hmm. of you, so they'll know that. But sure. um, yeah, where where did deconstruction enter your life is maybe the first question I would ask. Yeah, so I, it's funny because for me, deconstruction... Um, and, and I'm going to get into kind of two different definitions of what this word means to me. And I think that deconstruction is both something that I have a little bit of experience with as somebody that's following Jesus and had to sort of, as you might say, burn away the chaff in in different things in my life that I believed were like essential parts of my relationship with Jesus and then turned out to not be so. And like having to think through that, as Hebrew says, you know, throw off the weights um, and the sin that so easily entangles. I think that that's a form of deconstruction that I'm quite familiar with and probably began around the time that I got saved in high school. Um, I was brought up in a, in a Protestant church, brought up in a Protestant family. And when I made a decision to start following Jesus, there's a lot of, of thinking that I had to do about what the Bible actually says about how I am to live and, and what I should believe and things that sort of crept in through into my beliefs and into my community's beliefs through other places that aren't actually, um, We'll, we'll call them expectations of the Lord or things that are actually supported in scripture. And so I had to do a lot of that thinking and I'm going to, I'm going to call that a form of deconstruction, but we'll get there. I think the other form of deconstruction that I think we're more familiar with is we sort of observe our culture changing and our, our communities changing and even seeing our kids sort of struggle with faith. Um, 
I, I refer to that as nihilist deconstruction, where people sort of move away from Jesus entirely and move away from the church entirely and sort of forsake their beliefs or or walk away, as we so often say. That's that's a form of deconstruction that I've not experienced in my own way. And so it's I kind of come at this from a, a bit of a almost a murky middle sort of place of having thought critically about faith, um, but found my own faith kind of moved, uh, you know, became deeper and I, I moved into deeper intimacy with Jesus over time. But I've seen a lot of what I've called nihilistic construction in in the lives of people that I, I love dearly and people that have been very close to me and sort of having grown up in the church and sort of watching the lives of the people around me um, change and the beliefs of the people around me change over, over time. I've really had to think a lot about um, what is it that causes people that I love and God loves to look at their faith in the Lord and look at their relationship with the church and their relationship with the word of God and say, no, I'm, I'm out. And, um, I've tried to do so, I think with like lots of listening and, and try to be compassionate about that and not react to that, but just try to understand. And, um, I think that's, that's been helpful for me in, in kind of forming what I, what I hope is, is a constructive perspective on this that I'm excited to a share. Constructive deconstruction perspective that, absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. For, the, for those i know that there are people for whom this deconstruction word is new uh and i don't think you know we are both in our 20s 30s that kind of age range um earlier on the podcast i've just named myself as a 36 year old so they will know that yeah. um and i'm 20 yeah there you go um but for people who are maybe a little bit older they don't have kids in mm-hmm. this age range right now deconstruction isn't always something that's on people's radar mm-hmm. right now. A lot of the topics that we've talked about over the course of this podcast series, uh, people think about, right? LGBTQ yeah. inclusion, abortion, mm-hmm. race and reconciliation, deconstruction. I know people kind of went, what's that? When we put it on the docket for the summer, right. and I said, it's actually the thing that you're going to be talking about in a few years. And the whole plan behind these transforming culture seminars is that we were trying to catch people up um, you know, Steve West, one of our board members at NBC, someone who spoke in this podcast series, uh, he said the church is often 10 years behind mm. on cultural issues. And we want to not be 10 years behind. We want to be culturally relevant. Yeah. And instead of reacting to culture, we want to transform culture. Right. It's where the episode title or the podcast series title came from. Yeah. So deconstruction is one of those things that is happening now. Yeah. It has happened in forms, I think, if I think back for generations where people walk away from faith because it doesn't make sense to them. Mm. How would you define deconstruction right now for folk who are maybe trying to understand where this specific language of deconstruction comes from? What does it mean to you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really, really great question. So people that are unfamiliar with this language, they'll be more familiar with language like deconversion or like, um, or walking away, you know, renouncing your faith, things like that. And I think that that gets us sort of in the ballpark of what we're talking about when we talk about deconstruction, but it's not uh, in my view, um, the highest resolution word we can use when we're talking about this. And what do I mean when I say highest resolution word? If you think of a photo, there's like grainy photos where you can sort of make out sort of what's in that, like Bigfoot photos or, or Loch Ness Monster photos where you can sort of see what's there, but it's it's not particularly clear. And it's it's arguably an accurate picture. Like you are capturing something that's true, but you're not getting a lot of detail in in a photo like that. And you're not you're not seeing the whole picture, even though what you're seeing is in fact the case. And so when we talk about deconversion, walking away, renouncing your faith, for a lot of people, that is technically true, but it's actually not, you're not seeing in, it's it's not granular enough. You're not seeing close enough. And so I, I like the language of deconstruction to refer to this stuff because 
for very, it's not often the case that people wake up one day and decide, that's it, I'm not a Christian anymore. It's not often the case that people wake up and they say, that's it, I'm renouncing my faith. That's not, that's very few people I know have had that journey, if anyone. I know and have and had usually that it's a moment that comes after crisis or yes. something like that where uh, it's it's not a wake up, you're having your morning coffee, but there's a big event. Yes. And in the case of deconstruction, what I'm hearing you say is it's different than that. Yes. And, and I, I'll, I'll get there. So when I, when we use the language of deconstruction by con or in contrast to language like walking away, renouncing, de uh, deconverting, whatever, um, deconstruction, I think, really gets at this idea that your life and your internal world, your mind, um, it's it's a little bit like there's pieces of it, right? Like there's different I like to think of a mind as a house, right? There's there's structural uh, components to it and there's weight bearing pieces to it. And like there's like I talked about this when when we did the lecture at NBC back in the summer, like there are different aspects of your life that form really critical pieces of who you understand yourself to be. For many people, being a father is is a is a piece of your identity that is that is critical and it's weight bearing. Like you build a lot of your life around the fact that you are a father um, and in theory, your life would be shattered if you had been a father and then there came some tragic event that rendered you not a father anymore. And if that's, and I, I said this at the, at the lecture in the summer, but if that's been your experience, either as a father or a mother, I can't tell you how, um, how sore I am that that has been your experience. And so I don't mean to be insensitive, um, but that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make is that that, that changes you. The life that you've built is sort of built around this aspect of your life that um, is sort of a weight bearing structure in, in your mind and in your soul. And so when we talk about deconstruction um, from a spiritual perspective, what we're talking about is somebody who has a faith in Jesus and that faith in Jesus has, is multifaceted. You know, you believe in the word of God. You believe in the Bible is the inerrant word of God. You believe that Jesus is the only son of God. You believe that he was a, a historical figure who actually came and wasn't just sort of a myth like we think of the, the Greek gods, for example. Um, you believe in things like the sanctity of marriage and you believe you know all sorts of things that are connected to your faith and deconstruction is the process by which you slowly start picking those things out and de and removing them examining them examining them and potentially dispensing with them piece by piece and that's really why i like the language of deconstruction because for so many people it is a piece by piece process where you don't just wake up one day and say that's it all of it is gone it's more like you wake up and it's like huh I have questions about the inerrancy of scripture. Let's look into this. And then all of a sudden you start having these doubts about the inerrancy of scripture and you might still believe in God, but you you're starting to doubt the basis of that. Or you might, you know, struggle with the concept of God being good because of some terrible thing that's happened in your life or the life of somebody you love or, you know, uh, because of a justice or injustice issue that you're observing in the world. And like, that's a piece, but it's not the whole thing. And eventually we find that people who sort of deconstruct their faith, they've done this on a number of different issues in their life and they're eventually left without the structure they started with and that's why i think the language of deconstruction is a much higher resolution photo of what we talk about when we say things like walking away it's not an overnight process it's a piece by piece step by step i think i think i'm i'm walking away from the lord so that's again one version of deconstruction but i like like the active sense of deconstruction or the piecemeal connotation of deconstruction as opposed to like a a blanket statement, I was one thing and now I'm something else. Yeah, it makes me think about a, a house being taken apart brick by brick yes. as opposed to someone bringing in a battering ram yeah. or a wrecking ball. You know, the, the house is coming down either way, but one of them is much more intentional. Yeah. Um, wrecking balls will destroy a whole bunch of things. And 
I think in talking to you earlier and just researching and reading about deconstruction, when people deconstruct, they're really going after what bricks do I want to keep? Mm-hmm. Not understanding necessarily, and I know you're going to get into this with nihilistic deconstruction, as you call it, mm-hmm. that sometimes there are big bricks that if you remove foundation bricks, the mm-hmm. rest of the house cannot stand. Yeah. And there are there are folks out there who feel like, you know what, if I remove this brick, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize that it's a keystone brick that holds a bunch of the house together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a literal person. I like to think that way. And so, oh, the word deconstruction, I really think about this brick by brick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering perhaps if you could talk a little bit about um, whether it's okay for people to deconstruct. And I shared earlier in a little bit of my story is that I, I wandered away from faith in university. Uh, that was a surprise to my parents when they found out later after coming back to faith. And I shared with them because I was a good Christian boy whenever I went to church with them. Right. Because it was very convenient just to go to church and not have them question me. Uh, But that's something where it was uh, an interesting experience kind of wandering, not with like it it almost like I didn't I wasn't mad at God is often what I tell people. You know, I just was like, oh, let's go over here and see what's over here. Right. Hindsight being what it is, I would say now that I was looking for a different worldview that fit what I believe to be true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the end of the day, I could not find another worldview that fit the narrative of my life Hmm. better than Jesus. Hmm. Uh, People who did not grow up in a Christian home might say that that's because that's what I grew up with. Fair enough. I'm not going to argue that. Uh, I also happen to think that the Bible is true. (laughs) And so it does hold together better than a lot of the other worldviews. Mm -hmm. And all of this to say is that it gives me a lot of grace for people who are deconstructing or who are wandering and are unsure because I've been there, done that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not all of my friends who have wandered or deconstructed have ended back at a place of faith. Right. And sometimes I feel very fortunate because I know that that could have been me too. Yeah. Um, because I believe the Bible to be true and that Jesus is the risen Savior, uh, it has a huge impact on what I believe and how I look at yeah. the world. Uh, and I, I often mourn for friends who have lost that because they're left with a sense of emptiness. Yeah. Uh, and that I probably is a really good transition into the nihilism. But yeah. I also know you've got some Kierkegaard and all sorts of stuff yeah, you yeah. want to talk about. So <laughs> where do you want to go first? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, so I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing that. So the question that you asked off the top is, is it OK to deconstruct? And um, and I, I love that question in part because I want to correct the question a bit before I answer it, if I may. Um the the sorry and it's it's not that it's a it's a bad question i think it's a i think it's a good question but i think it's important for us to think about what we what we mean when we ask this question is it okay um i'm not going to sit here and and offer a moral prescription from a biblical perspective about whether it's okay to go on a journey of of searching your soul and searching the truth for um like searching for the truth to determine whether or not what you believe is actually true. Um, I think that it's, it's a, it's a good thing and it's something that everybody on, on some level does when they're looking for the truth. I think people who come to faith from, from not having faith in Jesus are in some sense doing this thing of trying to figure out what it is, they how, what they already believe is or is not consistent with the truth. Um, I'm not a postmodernist. I actually do believe that some things are objectively true. And so, um, I just want to get that out the gate. Um, it's important to say these days cause we can't assume that anymore. Well, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Christian I, postmodernists. I know I'm like, wait, what, how do you reconcile those two things? Sure. Yeah. And, and I think there is a space for postmodernism insofar as it requires us to think about inherent subjectivity. I have a, I have a friend that, that lives in London. That's really 
he's a believer, is a very, very intelligent guy. And one of the things he constantly reminds me of is the importance of recognizing that that, that your perceptions can get in the way of your understanding of the truth or can inform your understanding of the truth all the time. And that can be very subjective to who you are. And so just kind of accounting for that is an important truth that postmodernism has put on the table. But, you know, I don't believe that that compromises the fact that truth is, in fact, real and ascertainable, you know? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a postmodernist. Like I, I do believe in objective truth. I think it's important to bear in mind that, um, that your subjective perceptions of things can sort of interfere with how we see the truth, but the truth does exist. And I think that's important to, to recognize. But, um, from, from my perspective, the question of whether deconstruction is or is not okay, um, is, is less the question that, that, I feel equipped to answer. I think that there are some kinds of deconstruction that are extremely helpful. And I, I call that sanctification deconstruction. I want to get into that in a second. But there's another kind of deconstruction that we've been referring to that I call nihilism deconstruction that I think warrants a lot of compassion, in part because sometimes deconstruction in those circumstances is involuntary. It happens to you and you need to and you need to contend with it. And so um I would not go so far as to say that that kind of deconstruction is not okay so much as I could say that kind of deconstruction can be dangerous to to your faith um and it's a and it's a scary thing and it's a and it's a it can be a sorrowful thing like Luke you you said a few minutes ago that some of some of the people you know who who went on this deconstruction journey um didn't actually come back to the Lord and and you grieve for them on on some level and I think that that's the appropriate response like is it okay well it's it's challenging. It warrants a lot of. It requires compassion. Um, I'm not going to stand here and and judge people who go there because there's a lot of really good reasons why people might go down that road. And I and I want to discuss those. I think today it's part of the one of the main things I want to discuss today, so that we can be equipped to go after those people with the Great Commission and and equipped with the Gospel of Christ. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but it does kind of reframe the discussion a little I bit. Think, and I think, I it's, think it's really helpful. Okay. Um, one of the reasons I ask that question is that there are a lot of people uh, out there, and I, I think unfortunately it's been a part of evangelical Protestant tradition mm. that you're not allowed to question, that ah. you just have to believe that the Bible is true right. and that it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And yet I, I see in scripture instances where uh, people we consider role models in lots of other areas of our life, mm-hmm. they're not perfect. You know, David wrote these Psalms and also cheated on yeah. uh, his wife with Bathsheba yeah. and caused a whole bunch of sin there. Yeah. Um, but there are people who wrestle, with, yeah. li- quite literally wrestle with God yes. uh, and are touched for it. Um, people who ask questions of God and are left better for it. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes in the world that we live in, we can feel very defensive of people questioning our faith. Mm -hmm. We live in a post-Christian world, maybe not, we might even be post-post-modern at this point in some ways, but we live in a post-Christian world where I think the number is something like 7% of Canadian population or even 2%, I'd have to look up the statistic, Mm -hmm. identify as evangelical Christian. Mm -hmm. We are not a majority group. No. And we sometimes still live as if we are a majority group in the 1950s and even into the 60s a little bit. It would have been very culturally appropriate for someone who wanted to sell insurance to be found at church on Sunday yes. because you needed to be a Christian insurance salesman. Right Nowadays, you don't need to be a Christian to yeah. sell insurance or anything like that. And so insurance salesmen who maybe didn't believe that the Bible was true 
they will not be at church on Sunday morning, right? right? We're post-Christian. And I think with that has come a lot of reality for people that there's fear that comes from being not the majority group anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's kind of that us versus them mentality. And Mm -hmm. that can sometimes cause people to lock down and say, you know what, don't question anything. You just have to believe it. And so that's why I I asked the question about deconstruction off the hop. I want to know, am I okay to ask questions? And that's kind of where it comes from. And I think it's helpful to hear there is a good way to ask questions. Yeah. What we do with those questions and how we respond to those questions is important as yeah, well. For sure, for sure. So I appreciate you clarifying that then. I I, I, I want to stay unequiv- state unequivocally that not only do I think, um, not only do I think it's okay to do that critical self-reflection about about your faith um, and ask questions to put it, to put it that way, I, I think it's, I think it's extremely important that we do. Um, and I, and I want to talk about the ways it can be dangerous and the ways that it can be helpful. And so I think at this point, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of outline these two styles of deconstruction that I refer to um, and just kind of talk through what they're like, what their, what their nature is from my perspective, and then uh, how we can sort of approach these things graciously. The, the message, um, and I was really encouraged by the way, when I, I went to NBC this summer to, to teach on this there, I was really encouraged by, how many of the questions after the seminar were just about love? Like, how do we love our neighbor? Like, what does that mean? How can we best do this? Um, what are the nuances of that? Because that really is my message here. We need to love our deconstructing neighbor. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think that that's really the answer from an evangelical perspective is like, how do we advance the gospel to people that are walking away? Um, we do so, uh, we do so in, in love. And so, um, I'm going to start with nihilism deconstruction because I think that's really helpful. So what sounds I, good. Um, the the di- distinction between what I call nihilism deconstruction and what I call sanctification deconstruction is really the direction towards which it tends. That's a complicated way of saying this. If you are moving towards a deeper relationship with Jesus as a consequence of your uh, questioning, digging, reflecting, deconstructing. Um, for my view, that is a positive Holy Spirit driven thing that you should encourage in yourselves, in your children, in the people, in your in your friends, in the in the lives of the people in your church, in your in your colleagues at school, whatever the case is. If you see people asking questions and you see that that is the product of them deepening their relationship with Jesus and sort of shedding the things that might be dead weight, shall we put it? Um you know, throw off every weight, as Hebrew says, mm-hmm. that's a that's a really positive thing. The contrast to that is something called is what I call nihilist deconstruction. We're not moving towards Jesus in the process of our questioning and self-reflection. We are moving away from Jesus into nothing. And that's kind of what nihilism is. Nihilism is the belief in nothing. You know, we talked about that house at the beginning that is kind of the structure of your mind. If if what you're ultimately left with is rubble, um, I, I would call you that you don't have a house. You don't have a house. You know, you're you're left with with chaos. You know, you're left with very little to to support your your life you're left with little convictions you're left, yeah you know it's and i'm not going to say you're left with very little that's stable i think that's probably the best way of putting it. you're left with with nothing nihilism the belief in nothing and that that i think is where a lot of the trouble comes in and so what i want to say off the top about nihilism deconstruction is that it's an ex- it's an extremely painful process, kind of what you what you alluded to earlier for a lot of people. I, you know, the podcast you were referring to at the beginning, Luke, that you had heard me speaking on. Um, 
like I can tell you just from conversations with the individual that I was speaking with on that show is that deconstruction was an extremely, extremely painful process for this individual. And he, he no longer would identify as a Christian at all. He'd probably call himself an agnostic atheist. Um, and, uh, and I, I think all of that's on his show. And so I'm not breaching any confidences here. Um, but the, but it was, it was tough. And so I want to read, um, uh, something that I shared at NBC. Um, this is a passage, a very famous passage by a 19th century German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche is, um, as I say, he's an existentialist. Um, he's very famous for his phrase, like God is dead and we have killed him. And, uh, Obviously, that sounds very jarring to us as Christians, but I want to read you the passage that that comes from because I think it actually provides a little bit of the emotional context that animates um, deconstruction in the lives of a lot of people that go through this process. Okay, Um, Sounds good. Great. This is out of a a book of his called The Joyous Science. Uh, It was published in 1882. Excuse me. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran into the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one, asked one. Did he wander off like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone to sea or immigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed. And the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? He cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how do we do this? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it heading now? Where are we heading now? Away from all suns? Are we not constantly falling backwards, sidewards, forwards in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually falling evermore? Do we not need lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as of yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are parrying God? Do we smell nothing yet of the divine decomposition for gods to decompose? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has ever known has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood clean from us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement or what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed. And whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a different history than ever before. These are some of the most infamous words of one of history's most infamous thinkers. But I think that if you've heard this phrase, God is dead before, you've likely kind of experienced this as sort of with a bit of a shudder of like, who is this German atheist philosopher that's, right. you know, yeah. celebrating the death of God. And that's not at all what's happening in this in this story here. And I think the context really illustrates that for Nietzsche, the absence of God in a person's life is devastating. 
right now he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God, but he is somebody who went on his own deconstruction that I don't really think I have time to outline today. But in any event, um, he, he really does illustrate that, that when God is dead, <laughs> when we deconstruct, when we, when we choose to eliminate God from our lives as individuals and as a society, um, what we're left with is, is something that's kind of horrifying. Um, at least at first, and so at least on an individual level. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about why that warrants our compassion for people that do go on this journey. It's obviously not a literal death of God, although ironically, as Christians, we do believe that God died, but of course, He raised again. He did not remain he dead. He is not dead. He is he not was, dead, but is not <laughs> right. Exactly. When Nietzsche says God has died, yes, we agree. When Nietzsche says God remains dead, no, we don't agree. Exactly. So, um, so let me let me go through some different reasons why somebody might deconstruct into nothing. So. There's a, there's a lot of statistics out there about people going to university and, and losing their faith. Well, why is this? There's a, I call this justice-oriented deconstruction. Um, secular humanism is sort of the prevailing kind of belief system, and we've probably heard a lot about that in the podcast up to this point. Um, there's, a, there's some thinkers out there that would say that, um, you know, should the heavens, like, just, does justice demand this? If so, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. You know, anything short of justice is mere mischief making. And I think there's a lot of young people that go away to university and are sort of convinced of that perspective where they see injustices in the world and that bothers them. And they say, well, if if God is not preventing these injustices, then maybe we we shouldn't believe in God at all. And and they're moved by compassion for the plight of people who are suffering. And they feel as though what they've been taught to believe growing up is not has not provided an answer to that. Otherwise, there would not be so much injustice in the world, or worse yet, they're being taught at university some true things about how injustices have actually been perpetuated in the name of Jesus. And those things can really cause a crisis of faith for people. And it comes from this place of eagerly and sincerely desiring the well-being of others. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that when we see our children, for example, or our friends going away to university and, and suffering the loss of their faith um, or struggling through the loss of their faith because they they worry that what they believe is either not the solution to injustice or worse yet has caused more injustice than it has solved. I think we need to be aware of of that risk and we as Christians need to be alive to the reality that um, a there is a, there are there are solutions to that from a biblical perspective um, but it's it doesn't come from a place of intrinsic desire to rebel. It it comes from a place of a desire, I think, to be compassionate towards the needs of the people around us, which is a good and godly thing. And I think we need to affirm that in people, mm. you know. And so that's some hair splitting I think we need to do. But but it's important um, because if we respond to this sort of secular humanist deconstruction in our friends and in our children by simply being angry at them for daring to ask the questions or daring to believe some of the things they're being taught at school, that's the wrong response. I think we're going to push people away. Yeah. And I'll, I'll jump in because I'm afraid we'll never come back to it. We've got so much to talk about. Yeah. Uh, it's something as a parent, I've got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Most of our listeners would know that because mm -hmm. I've talked about them a lot. Great. I, turns out I like them a lot. Oh, good. They are a part of my <laughs> life. Like you said earlier, being a father is a big building block in my life. Yeah. Uh, we wrestle with what do we teach our kids and when. Uh, yeah. The story I've told before, I think, is that my daughter ruined uh, Christmas for her JK class in mm -hmm. a public school because she told them openly that Santa wasn't real. Right. Um, and that was something that we ran into unexpectedly because we had taught her that Santa was a tradition that was not real. There was no man coming down the chimney. 
We did not in a million years imagine she would then turn around trusting us and tell her whole class. Um, but it does bring up the question, at what point is it right? And I think it's different for every child, because if we don't answer those questions at the right age, they can come back to bite us later in a big way if we're not ready. Yeah. Yeah. So I I appreciate you saying that. Like I And I should say as a caveat, I'm not a parent, and so I can't speak to sort of the nuances of how to raise a child. Yeah. And I'm not, and I want to be clear, no judgment. I just think it's a very interesting question because right now we're talking about how do we prepare people for these hard questions. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I know as a parent, it's hitting me, uh, but it's a good thing that you're saying is that mm-hmm. sometimes we wait too long to answer important questions. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that come up in life mm-hmm. unexpectedly. You know, the Santa one we didn't see coming, mm-hmm. but there are things now as a nine-year-old, she's coming home from public school. And we've talked about that on other episodes of this podcast that mm-hmm. my children are in public school and we think that's right and good at this time. Uh, the world is rapidly changing and mm-hmm. that is a thing we're aware of, but uh, how to prepare people for these really hard things that yeah. could become deconstruction points yeah. later in life, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's probably one of the things that's scariest for anyone who knows someone deconstructing is where did this start? Yeah. Uh, and and the reality is, is that it could start anywhere for anyone. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, as I spoke from my experience, there wasn't one big moment where I said, oh, I need to deconstruct because of X, Y, Z. But there was a lot of questions I had. Yeah. Um, my father is a scientist. And right. so uh, I grew up in a home where we trusted science. Mm-hmm. And right now in the world we live in, post-pandemic sort of, but not really, mm-hmm. trusting science isn't a given for a lot of people right. because they, they there's a real lack of trust of authority. Yes, And that's something that God is the ultimate authority. We both believe that is, yeah. you know, objective truth. Yeah. But that we can't make that assumption anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes very difficult to determine where did this start for yeah. someone? How do I get back to that point? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we think if we can fix that one thing at the beginning, if we can put the first brick back in place, right. everything else will solve itself. Well, mm. guess what? If you've taken out more than one brick, you it's have to like go that. brick by brick yeah. and reestablish it. Or else, as you said earlier, you're left with rubble. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to, I kind of have two responses to that. First, um, I appreciate you mentioned sort of the, the, the relationship with science and being able to trust science sort of in, in this pandemic post-pandemic world kind of sort of post-pandemic yeah. world I, we all hope post-pandemic we all, but we'll yeah. see we'll see we'll <laughs> this see winter will be right. winter is coming is winter the thing is I keep coming. thinking in my head <laughs> sorry george r, r. martin we right. co-opted that in real life right but. Yeah. the the preceding is not an endorsement of everything in the yeah, game I've, of thrones books I, i've watched half an episode and i've read half a chapter and in both cases i said this is not for me right i know you and i were joking before we started recording there's that black mirror show and i said yeah. no it's not for me no. that, i don't need to see those in my life right i'm not ready for it right yeah right Right. Yeah. Anyway, side sidebar. That's all right. No, no, no. So um, I appreciate you mentioned sort of the the losing confidence in in science and and to some extent, maybe to a greater extent, our government over the course of the pandemic. Um, I actually think for a lot of people who are in the community that are are struggling with sort of the the government and with trusting the the predominant scientific voices. Um, there's a bit of a deconstruction journey there too, because we also are in the same community that. Um, you know, up to this point in in history, would have been relatively supportive of of governments, um, of, of governments. You know, uh, in, in so far as they were responsible for like the criminal law and you know truth and you know enforcing you know justice in in our communities. Like we're we've typically as as the church had a a decent relationship with our government in the West at the very least in the twenty first century, um, and 
for that relationship to now be one of frustration and disillusionment, I actually think is in some sense on a psychological and emotional level, very similar to the relationship, the, the ways that are that deconstructing folks can uh, see their relationship with God and with the church sort of deteriorating as a, as a kind of a, a disillusionment. And so I just say that not because it's identical, and I don't believe that it is. But if you see that in yourself, you maybe will have some basis for empathizing with the people in your life that are in this process of deconstruction. And even as you say that, I realize really, we can deconstruct anything, yes. right? And we we are very specifically talking about theological deconstruction. Yes. Uh, we, you know, people deconstruct things every day. Um, the reality for me, when I realized as a child myself that Santa wasn't real, Mm -hmm. uh, that I had to deconstruct a belief that I had and put something else in its place. Yeah. Santa is a nice tradition. And now I understand when I, man, I should have given a content warning. Like if you've got kids who don't know about <laughs> Santa, I have just totally blown this. Uh, most of our listeners I'm sure won't have a problem with that, but you know, my mom, uh, loves giving gifts. And so we would continue to get gifts from Santa, Right. but that was her way of sneaking extra presents in. And when my dad would get mad and say, that's too many presents, she said, I didn't give them Santa right. gave them. And it was a very <laughs> that's uh, implicit, like ex and to this day, we fight my mom on how many presents, you know, mom, if you're listening, it's enough. Like two is enough. I don't know what number to say, but uh, she's been much better in recent years. That's but awesome. that that's a deep like my daughter forced a deconstruction on her junior kindergarten right. class. Right. Because the realities changed. Yeah. Um, and that maybe that was a crisis deconstruction as opposed to a brick by brick for right, some sure. of them. Um, the best part of that story, which I've told before, is that uh, her now best friend's mother wrote to me by text and said, how do you feel about the Easter bunny? We need to prepare our daughter for whatever your daughter's <laughs> going to say around Easter. And I thought, oh, okay. Yes, so, okay. Anyways, we're off topic again. That's this all right. The problem when you put the two of us in a room together. Yeah, of course. Hey, yeah. 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 For listeners at home, Luke and I spoke a few times before uh, before the summer just to sort of prepare for the for the series. And it was always like this. We would just talk. It was great. Um, so, yeah, I, I appreciate you sort of mentioning the crisis deconstruction um thing, uh, particularly with your daughter's friends and their parents, because that's actually a decent segue into sort of a, another category or catalyst for deconstruction that I that I want to talk about. And I, I have endless amounts of time for for this category as well. And so I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I call it trauma response deconstruction that's based on mm -hmm. experiences and hurt. OK, and um, a lot of us will know people and potentially even be people who had to start questioning our faith because something critical happened in our life that did not compute with um, who we understood God to be and who and what we understood our lives were going to be as someone who's following Jesus. And so that's going to be where where divorce has happened. That's going to be where maybe you've been sexually assaulted and you've had to rebuild your understanding of what it is to follow a good God that lets this happen to me or someone I love. That's a tough question. It it raises a whole lot of very meaningful questions. Um, there are very meaningful sort of doubts, I think, for a lot of people that mm. I, I really think we as the church really need to get right in being compassionate and understanding for and not, and this is very important, not getting angry at people that struggle with their faith after stuff like this happens. And I, I'm like you, if you're listening, you can't see this. Like I'm, I'm fighting back tears on this because... I'm, I really think that this is an area that we as the church, uh, the capital C church, need to grow in, right? I think we're, we're too quick to respond to the symptoms of these problems as if they're the root cause and they're not. Um, I, know, I know personally people who 
um, and I guess, sorry, there maybe a content warning will be necessary in the intro, mm-hmm. Luke, but I'm, I, I know people who have been sexually assaulted, for example, and, um, and have found themselves in a place where they really do need to rethink the goodness of God. And it's something that they've taken for granted, but never actually like put some teeth on it, if I can put it that way, or like, you know, thought about this concept of what it actually means for God to be good and for me to follow a God that, that is good. And then for something so outrageously awful happening. Um, and sorry, I, I can speak with some authority on, on issues like sexual assault. For example, I'm a crown prosecutor. I'm a criminal, I'm a criminal lawyer. Like I have a lot of visibility to situations like this. Um, I, uh, I, I really think that we as the church need to respond fundamentally from a place of compassion and understanding and patience and gentleness and, and love to people who are in situations like this. So, and I know it's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I think that's almost, you know, we're going to move in the the time we have remaining a little bit towards kind of what do we do when people are deconstructing? I know, but, um, compassion and patience are two words that I love because, we are so used going back to this post-Christian world that we live in. We're so used to having all the answers and people, especially young people, just accepting them as pat answers mm-hmm. when that's not the reality, mm-hmm. right? Culture is increasingly and way more than halfway towards mm-hmm. not believing that God is real at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that leaves us with is then the need to allow the questions and also to allow the space as people to explore. But and, and this is what we're trying to practice with my own children, even though they're five and nine, is to allow them the opportunity to explore, but to be ready with biblical truth. Yeah. And it demands over-preparedness on yeah. the part of, of the parents and the, the, the adults who are in a child or a youth's life. Yeah. Um, at NBC, we often talk about wanting to be that place where there's another adult present. Yeah. Um, in a two-parent family, we'd call that the third adult. In a one-parent family, we'd call it the second adult. We just call it another adult. Because often as, as authority figures, parents, grandparents, trusted loved ones in a family, when someone's deconstructing, that person is not always the person that's going to be talked to and said, I'm struggling with this. Mm-hmm. It's that other adult who is trusted because they're adjacently present. They seem trustworthy and kind, patient, loving, mm-hmm. compassionate, all these words that you're using. If they're ready with biblical answers, yeah. it's going to be so reassuring to a child or to a youth, to anyone mm-hmm to know that there's someone there who's just willing to listen yeah. and to walk through it with yeah. them yes, without having to have all the answers. Yes. I, you know, as a camp director for the last almost decade, I've, I've trained all of my staff. It is not okay to give an answer that you don't know is hundred percent true because Absolutely. what happens is you set that person down a wrong path. You don't know when that's going to come up at another yeah. time. It is perfectly acceptable to say, I don't know, yeah. but I will find out. Mm-hmm. And then you actually have to do, you have to go find out. Yes. If you don't go find out, then you've just set them down a notch again. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many resources out there now with the advent of the internet and, and mm-hmm. all of that, you know, mm-hmm. great podcasts like the ones you're listening to now. Uh, For where example. People are able to get answers. Yeah. And then go back and have those discussions. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I've noticed as, as I deconstructed and came back to faith. I had to do it all on my own. Yeah. And I, perhaps because of that experience, am hyper aware of those in my local church uh, mm-hmm. where we attend. If I see young people struggling, I just check in and see how they're doing so that they know that I'm present and available. Mm-hmm. They may never ask me a question. But to be that other adult, that that third, second, fourth, whatever adult it takes to say you are loved and yeah. you are you are caught up in this church, big C church that loves you mm-hmm. and is here for you. Yeah. 
we are not leaving you on your own to deconstruct yeah. into nothing. We are here right. to deconstruct or to reconstruct. I think we've, we've used that language yes. sometimes yep. too, you and I talking that we can reconstruct towards something better and, and bigger than you even could have. Oh, I'm so excited to be in heaven one day and see how it actually all fits together. Yeah. Right. Um, I've joked with people before that I'm, we're going to be too busy worshiping the risen Lord and savior to really get into the nitty gritty of say like how the flood actually worked right. <laughs> or creation or, you know, all of these things, but it's going to be so exciting to see how it actually does all hang together. Yeah. The, the inquisitive part of my mind is mm-hmm. so excited just to know. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. That whole diatribe there is just this idea of like being present, mm-hmm. but willing to catch people when they're falling mm-hmm. and saying, I'm with you. You're yeah. not alone. And I'm just going to hang on that for a second and then and we'll keep going because um, you mentioned sort of like you mentioned that it's it's OK to not have all the answers and to be willing to. And it's actually critical to be clear about when you don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a blog a while back that I where I make a distinction between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. And this will be language that's familiar to sort of academic theologians and maybe maybe some lay theologians that I'm have done some reading. I'm going to do it. Please. Yeah. So, so <laughs> orthodoxy just being right thinking, right doctrine, orthodoxy, orthopraxy being right practice. OK. And uh, in my view. And reasonable people can disagree on this. Um, I don't think anybody disputes that you need both in your in your walk with the Lord. Like there's there's doctrines that we ought to believe as the people of God. There's also ways we need to behave as the people of God, or else faith without works is dead. Right. Right. And so I think when we're when we're coming alongside people who are deconstructing for one reason or another, I almost think that orthodoxy is not really going to be the thing that people need in moments like that, particularly when we're talking about trauma response deconstruction. They've been wounded by somebody's behavior or something critical that's happened in their life. They don't need you to preach doctrine at them. They need you to hold them tight. Okay. And I, I, again, I'm, I really believe this very strongly and we need to understand on an intuitive heart level in a lifestyle level, what it means to be followers of the God of love. And let that bleed into our relationships with people who are who are suffering and whose faith is suffering as a consequence of some injustice or trauma they've suffered. Um, and so I think that's I think that's really, really critical. And I, I really do want to emphasize that as maybe the the point of this whole discussion here. OK. Um, All right. That's it. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, done. we're done. No, we're not. We're not. I'm going to I am going to keep going here. Um, of course. So, yeah, I, I use kind of the example of divorce and sexual assault, uh, but there's there's other examples. And I just want to be really practical here of different things that might constitute, quote unquote, trauma response deconstruction that just sort of get our brains going and maybe thinking about the people in our lives that we could be loving better through these kinds of situations. And so um, I know I know people who have suffered medical hardships, for example, and know of people who have suffered medical hardships. And, you know, if your kids are on the Internet and they are, some of them might be familiar with a, a content creator named uh, Footless Joe. Footless Joe is a is a thirty something amputee who um, who had to have uh, her leg amputated from the knee down at some point because of a, a medical issue, and she grew up in an evangelical background in the United States, and uh, her medical issues caused her to really have to rethink her faith, and is not actually someone that would currently identify as a Christian, and it's just sort of one of the dominoes sort of in the the broader scheme of her life that really set her on a, a path of struggle, I think, and. Um, and she talks about that in her content on YouTube. You can go and look at it um, if you just kind of want to hear a little bit more about that story and what we can learn from it. But that's that's an example of, of something that might get someone down that path. Um, 
I think that there's a lot of people that grow up in, and this, this is going to be hard to say, and I, I mean this with no judgment whatsoever, but I'm going to say it anyways. I think there's a lot of people that grow up in unhealthy homes um, where maybe the marriage is not healthy, like their parents' marriage isn't healthy, or there's just stuff going on at home that really sort of disillusions them to the faith of their parents. You've got to be very careful about um, stewarding our marriage as well, I think, so as to not uh, discourage our kids with respect to with respect to their faith, because um, I know a number of people um, who who prayed a lot for the Lord's relief of the chaos in their home, um, and that chaos was strictly and solely affected by the marital discord of parents who stayed together. It's not it's not just not getting divorced. It's actually stewarding a healthy marriage. And so, mm-hmm. um, for people who who have kids and particularly young kids, um, I I would just issue that caution. Okay. Um, with the greatest of respect and sensitivity. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's a lot of people that are hurt just in the church in different ways, but I, I want to particularly highlight people who have served in ministry and found themselves unsupported by either their 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 co, um, co-ministers, shall we say, or even by their church congregations. A lot of people who have served as pastors um, and have found themselves really hurt uh, by their church communities and by people that they've worked with um, do you have to wrestle a lot with with what they've believed? And I think that that's an unintuitive idea for us. And I'm not at all saying that the questions that people ask in those circumstances about who God is and whether God is good and what they've done, um, yeah, wh- whether what they've s- spent their life uh, in service of is, is I, I just want to emphasize that, that we need to be compassionate to, to people who are in this situation and find mm. themselves asking these questions. We need to be very loving and supportive of our pastors uh, to the greatest degree possible. I think we need to be compassionate. We should not excuse um, sinful behavior in, in our leadership. And I think that's something we can be, we should be very careful of as well in the church. We shouldn't protect people from say criminal investigations if those criminal investigations are warranted. Um, but we, we should be as gracious to our leadership as we would ask them to be gracious to us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there's just this sort of existential frustration that life can be unfair you know again if your kids are on the internet and they are many of them will be familiar with somebody named um, pewdiepie pewdiepie being one of the he he was actually the the largest youtube channel for for years on the platform and in one of his videos in 2013 um he indicated that he regarded himself as an agnostic atheist he was playing a, a video game which is what he did wherein um one of the things that happened in the story of the video game is that a, a kid died of leukemia and he just said on in the video like i'm an agnostic atheist if god existed kids wouldn't get cancer um th- that's a difficult thing to know how to respond to right you know what i mean but it's the kind of like life is unfair sort of suffering that gets people asking those kinds of questions and again we need to be compassionate and not reactionary when we face stuff like that um c.s lewis uh kind of re in in his book, The Problem of Pain, which I commend to you, it's an excellent book, reiterates Epicurus's uh, critique of belief in God. Um, he he just he kind of tackles this question in the book. He says, there Epicurus says, God can't be both all powerful and good in a world where suffering takes place because the existence of the suffering either means that God can't stop the suffering or he doesn't care enough to do so. C.S. Lewis addresses this question directly in The Problem of Pain, but a lot of people, I think, sit with this kind of heart posture in the lives that they live and the kind of seeing the suffering in the world and say, well, where is God? It's a good question. 
I think we as the church should answer that question. And C.S. Lewis tries to in the in the problem of pain. But again, you can kind of see how this is a this is a question that warrants compassion and sensitivity and thought and not angry reacting, you know, and tribalism. So that's these are the different kinds of trauma-based deconstruction I think people can face. And the last one I'll I'll address is shame-based deconstruction. Um there's a lot of people that do things that they're not proud of. There's a lot of Christians that do things that they're not proud of that ultimately result in them rethinking their faith because it's easier to deal with than sitting under the condemnation of the of the Christianity that they've been taught to believe up to that point. So I know people who have, um, for yeah, I'll, uh, sexual sin I think comes up a lot in in deconstruction, and I'll, I'll I'm gonna sit there for now. Um, there's a lot of people who make sexual decisions, you know, unwise or unexpected sexual decisions kind of early in their life. And they were raised in the church and then they kind of step back from those decisions and they're like, so I have two options now. I can either continue to believe what I've always believed about, about sex and sexuality as the church, um, or as a member of the church and sit in this really grievous pain that I've given that up now. Um, or I've lived inconsistently with that now and I can't undo that or I change what I believe about this. And their deconstruction is a, is a way of protecting themselves from the violence that shame can do to a person's soul. So I, um, I just want us to be aware of that as well. And I would say um, Peter, in some sense in the Bible, um, experienced this a little bit. Mm. When, in, when, we were in, um, when we were at NBC in the summer, Luke, I, I shared a passage um, out of the book of Luke. Uh, Jesus, has, um, Jesus has been arrested and um, and we see the denial, the Peter's denial of Christ multiple times. I'm going, to, I'm going to read this passage. I'm reading out of Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 54 in the English Standard Version. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant, of the, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also were one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Later, when we see Peter in the story, we see that he's gone back to fishing, which is where he was before he mm -hmm. met Jesus, yeah. right? This shame, something he thought he'd never do. He just, this whole thing about the rooster crowing, that was something that Jesus told Peter when he said, Lord, I will never leave you. And Peter's, or and Jesus says, you watch before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter thinks this is completely unconscionable. Not possible. And then it happens. And the next time we see him, he's gone. He's back to his old life. He's fishing again. He's, he's given up not on the Lord, but on himself. Right. And cause it's, cause he's ashamed. Right. And I, I think that this is a form of deconstruction for Peter. It's not that he doesn't believe in the Lord anymore, but it's almost like he no longer considers himself worthy to follow him, right? And and that's a form of deconstruction, and I think we see that in the lives of, of our kids and of our of our friends, and in and some it, sense in ourselves. Yeah, no, it's interesting thinking about that story again, uh, you know, just thinking about how Jesus doesn't leave Peter where he is. Peter goes back to the beginning, so to speak. Yeah. And what does Jesus do? He goes and meets Peter 
fishing yeah. yeah, and goes back and finds him once again fishing, right? You know, the first time he calls him out, he says, come, come and help me make fishers of men and all right. that. Um, yeah. He catches Peter fishing once, yeah. he catches him, mm-hmm. and then Peter goes back and Jesus walks on back and doesn't leave him where he is, right? Mm-hmm. He finds him and that's, it's such an encouraging thing. I think that we can take note of that as believers and as people mm-hmm. who are trying to imitate Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, uh, disciples of apostles, mm-hmm. um, apprentices of mm-hmm. Jesus. If we are apprenticing under Jesus, and tr- then we're trying to do what he does, yeah. right? And yes. I think there's something really beautiful about seeing that Jesus continues to go back to the dark place yeah. and say, yeah. Peter, I am here for it. Yes. Right? Not only did I call out your sin in advance, like I knew you were going to do it, yeah. but after you screwed it up, I loved you enough to go get you again right. and, and restore you, right? We often talk about that passage at the end uh, where Peter, uh, you know, Jesus says, you know, feed my sheep. Yes. He restores Peter is yeah. what we often think of that passage and just takes him out of where he was and says, nope, you're good. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. I, I actually, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I talked about that in the summer and I, and I want to land there on this. I, I, um, I'll, I'll just, I'll finish with nihilism deconstruction. I'll talk briefly about sanctification deconstruction. I know there's other things that we want to do and I want to be cognizant of the time. We could do this all day, Luke. Right? Sure could. Um, so, and I'm, so. Coming I'll, next year, a new podcast. Right. From Kevin and Luke. Yeah, Deconstruction all day. All in day, a, every in day. In a closet with some <laughs> sheets and blankets. We, um, man, okay, well, we'll. <laughs> yeah, I, keep going. I'll focus, keep going. Focus. I'll we'll keep stay going. on task. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, so I just want to land this plane with respect to nihilism deconstruction because we've we've talked about Peter now and he's kind of had this shame-based experience where he's gone and we he he runs away and weeps bitterly and we know that he goes he goes fishing. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn us to Luke uh, sorry not Luke I'm gonna turn us to John chapter 21. Simon Peter, um, Thomas, Nathaniel of of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter says to them. I'm going fishing. This is after Christ has died, mm-hmm. right? This is after he's been executed. Um, and we know, but the apostles don't, that Christ is also risen, right? And so this is before they've seen him. But Simon Peter said to the other disciples, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they got, they got out and so they went out and got into a boat. Um, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loves, most of us think this is John, um, uh, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for uh, for he had been stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Judah Smith, out of, uh, out of Seattle, um, hilariously points out that Peter is so f- like flustered by the realization that this is the Lord that he actually put on his jacket and then jumped in the water. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's great. Um, threw himself into the sea, and the other disciples came in the uh, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. I think it's hilarious too. This was Peter's idea that they went fishing, and like the rest of them are the one bringing in the Doing haul. all the work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish you have just caught." It's it's this beautiful moment where Peter, seeing Jesus, like it's almost like he's forgotten his shame and like Jesus has come to Jesus has come for Jesus and, um, and just opened his arms with children. Have you caught any fish? He's not condemning them for being on the water. He's just, he's engaging with them where they are. Mm. And, and Peter goes and, and sees Jesus when they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon, Peter, I'm in verse 15. Now, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me more than these? Referring to the disciples. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, we'll feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Okay, wait, this is really cool. Because we just saw a minute ago that that Peter is denying Christ three times. Mm-hmm. And what we see now here is Jesus rehabilitating his confession. It's very clearly and I think deliberately a parallel to the denial of Christ that we saw just to, just days prior. Jesus is now coming back to him and having him reiterate, not for Jesus' benefit, but for Peter's. Yes, yeah. Lord, you know that I love you. And I think Peter, this is... Jesus rehabilitating his, his confession as part of his process of rebuilding Peter to um, to the place where he was and rebuilding his relationship with God and rebuilding the confidence that he has in the spirit of God for the call on his life. And I think that so many of us can be discouraged when we see the people around us deconstructing, walking away, etc. And we some of us can feel like that's really hopeless, I think, because of some some teachings that have emerged out of a verse in in Hebrews that talks about if you've tasted the Holy Spirit and then walked away that you can't come back. And I, I don't have a whole lot to say about that passage, except that that is the, the interpretations that I've heard of that passage, which suggests that a person can come back are inconsistent with what we see in Peter, right? And in with Jesus rehabilitating Peter's confession and and setting him out into the mission field. And I really want us to, to believe for our kids and believe for our spouses and believe for our friends and our coworkers and our, and, and the people around us that notwithstanding what deconstruction journey they may have been on or may be on with respect to their relationship with God, Christ can still go after them through us as the people of God and rehabilitate their confession so that we can hear our, the people around us say, as Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, despite that, despite having abdicated it previously. Previously, So I'm really passionate about this, and I think we need to, to love people well to see them come back into the kingdom of God and, and re-engage, uh, re-engage the relationship with Jesus. So I just I want us to be patient and compassionate and do as Jesus does, <laughs> frankly, in these situations. Um, I'm going to briefly touch on sanctification deconstruction. Sorry, Luke, I see you. You yeah, look like no, you're going I'm to say thinking, something. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a whole bunch of things, but sure. I also know that I've gone off track on you about 17 times. It's all so good. It's all good. Keep going. I'm, good. I'm wrestling with like, oh, I've got a question. No, I'm going to wait. Okay, no worries. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to land the plane here on nihilist deconstruction. Nihilism deconstruction is the process of moving from faith into nothing, out into nothing, nihilism, belief in nothing. And there's a lot of different reasons that people do this that warrant our compassion as the people of God. I've outlined them. I'm not going to reiterate them here, but I encourage us to really take that seriously and understand that, like what Paul says in Romans, the kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. May we be stewards and ambassadors of the kindness of God so as to facilitate or uh, or be a catalyst for the repentance of the people around us. Repentance not meaning sort of moral um moral confession, although there's a there's a component of that, but repentance is about turning the other way and walking in a different direction. And so if we see people walking away from Jesus, we want to see them repent in a technical sense and turn and face the Lord again. And so I, I think the kindness of God is meant to do that. And we should be stewards and ambassadors of the kindness of God with respect to the people around us that are deconstructing. Briefly on sanctification deconstructing, which is the the other category that I talked about at the beginning. 
Sanctification deconstruction, in my view, is the process of internal reflection and um, you might call it doubting, but it's really the process of 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 pruning our faith. Right. And so I, I grew up, for example, in a it's funny, Luke, actually, I since Luke and I spoke um, last about this about this topic and you know sort of arranging for this for this recording to happen, I actually went out and got two tattoos <laughs> and um, I, I grew up in an environment that uh that would have viewed tattoos with a whole lot of suspicion and i spent a lot of time thinking about that since i became a believer and since i since i started following jesus and i searched the scriptures and i spent a lot of time in prayer about it and seeking wise counsel and it came to a place where i no longer believed that christians were morally prohibited from getting tattoos that's a bit of a process of deconstruction because there is a piece of my faith you know christians don't get tattoos that i had to remove and replace with something else. And that's, mm. that is sort of a, a deconstruction, reconstruction sort of process where I'm not moving away from Jesus. I mean, maybe you're listening to this and you disagree that Christians can get tattoos and we can have that discussion. I'm fine with that. But in my, from my view, this is actually a part of me getting a clearer and more refined and accurate understanding of the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. And that is a process of sanctification, sanctification, just being a word that I use to refer to the process by which we are made to be like Jesus. And so I call it sanctification deconstruction because that was necessary for me to burn away the dead wood and take up and, um, and take up something that I think was a more accurate um, imitation of the image of God, if I can put it that way. Um, you might say, oh, how are tattoos, you know, part of you becoming more like Jesus? And I, I won't won't get into that right now, but um, but you can kind of see we're not that. putting your tattoos in the show notes. Don't worry. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, but but it really is like I'm using that as an analogy for the kinds of things that one might deconstruct, like cards and dancing and rock music, for example, are all examples of things that, you know, in the early to mid 20th century, um, and maybe in some communities now, really take issue with as being a part of, of our relationship with God or a part of you know, Christian culture, if you can put it that way. And from my perspective, it's actually a healthy thing to sort of rethink critically why we hold these beliefs and ask the Lord to weed out that which is not true, you know? And so... I, I would call that sanctification deconstruction. You know, I, yeah. And there's, there's more serious examples that I can point to of that. I, I don't want to harp on this too much, but I think there's some relatively old um, belief systems around, for example, the ways that, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> there's a, there's some, there's some relatively old belief systems about the ways that um, husbands can and cannot treat their wives, for example, that might've been, you know, quote unquote, theologically justified by some voices, you know, a hundred years ago, or, or even sooner than that, that um, by God's grace has been deconstructed out of true faith in the Lord or out of our faith in the Lord. Right. And is really not endemic to the Christian culture anymore. Slavery in the United States is a really good example. There's a lot of believers in uh, American history that justified their maltreatment of, of African-Americans and the enslavement of African-Americans with false and inaccurate and just really grotesque um, decontextualized interpretations of certain passages of scripture that um, Lord have mercy. Is it a good thing that we have repented of as a, as a Christian community in the 21st century? It is, it's simply unacceptable that that would be a part of, of our faith. And so I would call that a form of sanctification deconstruction where we need to look critically at the things that we believe in the name of Jesus and ask ourselves, is this of the Lord or not? And, and I think there's times when 
we will reconstruct, to use that language again, yeah. to a similar position that we had before. Yeah. It, it's quite possible to use the tattoo analogy that you went and searched the scriptures, sought wise counsel, yeah. and at the end of the day, you came to the conclusion, I cannot get a tattoo. Right. Uh, and so you, but you did the time you yep. took, you, you did the, you, you, you know, paid for it with your energy and, and searching. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that happens, mm -hmm. but sometimes things change too. Yeah. Uh, we have to be very careful in our modern day and age because we can probably find someone who can justify anything to us. Sure. And, yep. you know, we don't have time for it today, but there's a lot of questions around what is wise counsel. Yeah. Sure. Right. And when, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the story I like to tell about my mom, uh, we, came home from church one day we we walked to our church growing up because it was around the corner from us and we came home and a few minutes after we walked in the door uh some jehovah's witnesses knocked on the door right and my mother's bible happened to be on the steps right mm. next to the front door and, and so they said we'd like to talk to you about jesus she said very good your bible or mine and their eyes went wide when they realized she was kind of like in this case, accidentally ready to play but like right. she just grabbed her bible and she's like let's compare notes right um and so for someone who's not a believer, they might meet a Jehovah's Witness coming to the door mm -hmm. and, and they don't have that framework. Mm -hmm. It's really important where we get our information. Mm -hmm. um, it is. And, and in this day and age with, you know, the Internet, which your kids are on, uh, you can justify almost yeah. anything. Yeah. And we rightly have concerns about that when yes. we see things in modern culture that we just don't agree with. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a responsibility uh, and I'm, you know, I'm 36. I consider myself young, although the staff at NBC would tell me that I'm old now. Uh, but I have a responsibility to make sure that I am passing on the faith as I understand it, mm -hmm. biblically, scripturally holding to truth, mm -hmm. because it's very slippery, that slope towards mm -hmm. kind of heresy if we try to justify the things we want versus the things that are right. Yes. And as much as I personally don't care about your tattoos, if you came to the conviction that you should not have a tattoo, I'm, you know, it would be wrong of me to try to convince you otherwise yes. because tattoos are not a salvific issue. No, I think exactly. You know, if you told me that you didn't actually believe that Jesus came back to life and that was resurrected yeah. after three days, you and I would be having a different conversation Absolutely. and likely not recording it for other people to listen to. <laughs> yeah, or maybe we would, who knows, right? right? That would be an interesting podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it's something we need to be careful about. It and totally I, in is. no way am I condemning you. I think we're right. on the same page, but yeah. I think it's worth saying, you know, we have to be very careful where we choose our information now. Yeah. Uh, I, I see it with staff at various camps where I work. And I hear this from other camp directors that people are coming, the staff are coming to camp increasingly less equipped with biblical truth because it yeah. hasn't been a foundational part of their upbringing. Yeah. Um, and we need to turn the tide on that. And I, and I that's not a camp thing. That's a church thing. Yeah. Yeah, for uh, sure. Christian youth are working in all sorts of jobs. And if we can't articulate why we believe things, I think there's something very interesting and important about, you know, confessions or catechisms that help teach biblical truth, mm -hmm. um, even by rote, by memorization, mm -hmm. because it's kind of, you know, I think about uh, that verse, you know, um, oh, it's from the Psalms and I'm blanking on it right now, but about, you know, children kind of learning um, so that when they're old, they will not depart yeah. from it. That kind of <laughs> the verse that probably should be stuck in my head. And I'm not unaware that I'm talking about memorizing things and I don't have something properly okay. memorized, but train up um, a child in the way he should exactly. go. And when he's old, he, he will, will not, not depart, depart from, from it. it. There you go. Yeah. Even the same translation you and I well done. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Probably <laughs> it's NIV. Like John, John 316, when some people still use ye and thou, because that's right. what they learned and of they course. will know it forever. But yeah. I, I think we do have a responsibility to kind of pass on that, which we believe yeah. carefully. 
Yes. Um, and to not be slack about it. I can appreciate yeah. that you getting tattoos meant work for you yeah. and not just an arbitrary decision one right. night to go to the local tattoo parlor and kind of slap a soldier, uh, you know, like a sailor yeah. and a, an anchor or something mm-hmm. on your arm. Um, yeah. We need to be careful. We do need to be careful. And I, I want to be clear on this. And this is probably, this is what makes me a Christian versus like a, an amorphous existentialist thinker that has thoughts on deconstruction. Um Sanctification deconstruction, which I encourage, is rooted and anchored in intimacy with Jesus. Jesus being the the only Son of God, being God Himself incarnate, one one of three persons of the Trinity. And the way we know Jesus fundamentally is through belief in the Word of God, the Bible, the sixty six canonical books of the Protestant Scripture, and like that. That for me is what needs to anchor our our, our sanctification deconstruction, and what I'm calling for a deconstruction of from the sanctification perspective is that which we endorse in the name of Jesus or require in the name of Jesus that is not actually supported in scripture. So when we, when we say things like um, Christians don't get tattoos, for example, or it's not good for a Christian to get tattoos or it's sinful for a Christian to get tattoos. um, My response to that is let's see if that position is actually supported on a, on a theologically grounded interpretation of the word of God. And if the answer is no, then we have to stop telling people that it's wrong for Christians to get tattoos. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's really all I'm saying when I'm talking about sanctification deconstruction, I know people that are being raised in homes where they're being told that the Christian thing to believe is that the earth is flat. That breaks my heart because when they eventually come to the realization, yes, I know some people who are being raised in homes. Wait, what is it if it's not flat? Sorry, that the earth is flat. Excuse me. The earth is flat? I'm surprised. I'm messing with you. Oh I believe the gosh. earth is round. Don't worry. Kevin. The earth is not flat. Sorry. My position on the shape of the earth is that it is not flat. It's it is a sphere. A oblique spheroid. Yes, exactly. Yeah. My, um, but my, my point is that I think that when we fuse the name of Jesus with these sort of peripheral, um, we'll call them extraneous beliefs or even incorrect beliefs, um, like the, this, these kids that I know that are being raised in environments where they're being told that the Christian thing to believe is that the earth is flat will eventually be confronted with the reality that the earth is in fact a sphere. And then that will spawn a deconstruction moment for them where they're like, I don't know if I can believe the Bible anymore because I've been told my whole life that the Bible teaches this. And I now no longer believe that that's true. And it's so perfect. This is exactly why we taught our children that Santa isn't real. Yes. To bring it back to that. And, and, you know, for those of you who think that I'm trying to be a monster to my children, I'm not. We very intentionally made the decision because we felt like, yes, it's a fun thing to think that there's a jolly man who comes down the suit and we leave out milk and cookies. Dads of the world are upset with me because we want our milk and cookies on Christmas Eve. Right. But the reality was, is that my daughter at the time, we didn't have our son yet. We said we cannot teach her something that she will believe us to be true. And when she finds out it's a lie or that Mm. we've led her on in some fun tradition, we do not want her questioning the reality and the truth of the Bible or anything to do with our Lord and Savior. And so we have to tell the truth about all things. Yes. Which, I mean, I know we're kind of coming full circle and we're running up against 75 minutes of talking. So by far will be the longest podcast episode, I think. Uh, We can cut out all of my terrible stories later. So that'll save (laughs) us some time. Uh, Probably not. So we're just going to have to take the stories and run. But you know, this is this is exactly what we need to wrestle with, because I don't I don't believe that it's a problem for our kids to encounter hard things. Yes. Um, there's some debate out there about when kids should get a cell phone. And I, mm. I'm increasingly coming to the view. My nine year old does not have a cell phone, mm-hmm. but there are now views out there where people say, give your kids a cell phone as soon as you can, because mm-hmm. you would much rather teach them how to use a device like a cell phone mm. when you still have influence on their lives. Yeah. And if we are pretending that our kids are going to make decisions about all of these faith things when they're teenagers, it will be too late. They will have made decisions and the world will have influenced those decisions. So with the Santa thing, we said, you know what? 
We will explain it's a lovely tradition. You might get presents from Santa, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's mm-hmm. it's dad. Right. Because right. I inherited my mother's uh, yeah. gift giving tendencies. And now my wife is the one who's like, that's too many. And I'm right. like, it's so nice. <laughs> uh, so there's definitely gifts from Santa, quote, unquote, under yeah. our tree, too. Sure. Um, but, but contextualize in an understanding yeah, exactly. that's not misleading your Santa children. Santa is not real. Yes. He's a great tradition. It comes from the, you know, the Kris Kringle tradition. We can look into all of that because mm-hmm. I need to know that my children trust me when I tell them what is true and what is not. Yeah. Because if they can't trust me, mm-hmm. then I, I do not want to be that person causing a deconstruction moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there are and, very, very deeply held beliefs from people, I believe, out there in the Christian worldview that are wrong. Yes. Uh, and I'm not I'm not here necessarily to judge that at this moment, but we need to be very careful that we make important, careful decisions about yes. what we teach our kids. It's it is life or death in one sense, it, eternal life and eternal death. Absolutely. If my children deconstruct because I was light about these things, mm-hmm. I believe that's on me before the Lord that I didn't raise up, train up my child in the way yeah, he should go. Yeah, right. I, to I, quote the verse I now remember. Yes. Yeah. And I, I'll, I appreciate that. And I would also say that it's not just about our kids, but it's about our witness as a whole, right? Amen. You know, I'm a, I, like I said, I'm 28 years old. I, I work in a crown attorney's office and I, I take very seriously uh, the fact that I am constantly being a witness to the people around me in that office. And if I am, if I'm out here um, connecting my faith to certain unreasonable or unfair behaviors in my practice, and I say, well, because I believe this, I'm then, I'm therefore going to think about it because I believe in Jesus, I'm, I'm going to respond in in some, you know, I'll call it biblically unjustified way to a particular circumstance. And then people look at me and they say, I have to reject that thing, what you're doing. And because you connect it to your faith, I therefore have to reject your faith. Mm. That compromises my witness. And that is, that's hugely problematic. And so we need to be very thoughtful and critical before the Lord with wise counsel in reference to the scriptures at all times to ensure that our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy yeah. are biblically rooted so as, so as to not create deconstruction moments for the people around us in the future. Yeah, and, and maybe I'll, I'll try to land the plane here, yeah, so good. to speak, is that for me, as someone who did wander and without the language of deconstructed, did try to deconstruct um, or deconstructed salvifically and then reconstructed, the benefit of that for me has been that I am 100% more confident in my faith as a result of being challenged in my faith. Yeah, good. It is not something where I'm I'm unsure about what I believe. I don't have all the answers, as I said earlier, and I'm, I will never claim to have all the answers, which means sometimes I look dumb. But I can say I don't fully understand how those things line up. However, based on my worldview, this is what I see, and it hangs together in these ways. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it's up to the Lord to convict other people's hearts of whether or not that's going to be something that influences them too. Um, before university, you know, and that and that's my time frame. Like I would say, late high school into university, and then after university, had a not quite a, a big giant come to Jesus moment, but just one where I said, "Ah, it does work," and I'm going to follow Jesus mm-hmm. to the best of my ability. Good. As a result of that time away, I have much more empathy and sympathy for those who don't believe what I believe, um, and I am much more sure of what I believe because it's something that I own. And yeah. I feel a responsibility towards. Yeah. And Amen. ultimately, when I think about deconstruction, I think about people learning that they have to take responsibility for their own actions. Yeah. And I want my children doing that when I'm still kind of around or Lord willing, there's a third, second, another adult around to help mm. cover for that as well, uh, because I want there to be that safety net. Yeah. And if there's anything I'm taking away from today is that I need to do more work being a safety net for those around mm-hmm. me and just being present when things are hard, not hiding and excusing the church for its past mm-hmm. mistakes, but acknowledging them and moving forward with grace and compassion. Yeah. 
Kevin, this has been great. Uh, I know that there's a thousand more things that we could talk about, and maybe one day there will be a deconstruction podcast featuring Luke LaRock and Kevin Wilcox. I'm here but, for it. Uh, you know, you have just shared so much, and I really appreciate that you've taken this time not only to do it once, but to do it twice because it's an audio issue. So uh, we are praying for you in your role as a Crown attorney. We are grateful that you are um, salt and light uh, in that system because it can be a dark place sometimes. Uh, and I know having had personal conversations with you the ways that you tried to be that uh, for people. So thank you. We are praying for you. And yeah, looking forward to seeing what God's going to do with this conversation and the many others that will stem from it. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much, Luke. All right. That really was a different type of episode, but we trust that you were able to get to Kevin's heart about this important topic. We need to take it seriously, even if it's not our own personal reality. Once again, Kevin, thank you for your kindness in hosting us and for being so willing to go back to the drawing board about this episode. If all goes well, we should be back on track next week with Scotty Smith and social media. If not, it will be a surprise. Thank you all for listening and sticking with us. As always, if you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or give us a like on social media. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese audio and technical support from Charles West and the summer 2022 AV team. The theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina Tebakel-Hotz. We'll see you next Monday for our next episode of Transforming Culture. I need to know there is justice, that it will